It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for a beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you, so. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that our unity may one day be restored. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yeah, they'll know we are Christians by our love. In times where everyone is so divided, how can we be a good neighbor? Feeling all of his mysteries and making everything as plain as day. And if I have faith to say to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give all I own to the poor, or even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So, no matter what I say, no matter what I believe, no matter what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beautiful wood. I want to talk to you about a great memory that I had that occurred back in the fall of, actually the kind of late summer of 2017. And that was an opportunity to go with a group of men to Colorado to spend time climbing a 14,000 foot peak. What I would like to say in that is, is there were some wonderful things transpiring during that time. Some of you know that I'm a skier, that I enjoy the mountains, that I enjoy being in the mountains, but for whatever odd reason, I'm much more comfortable on two boards than I am actually climbing mountains. Uh, I have a fear of exposure. And in that, this was going to be tested as I was obviously climbing up a 14,000 foot peak. Interestingly enough, as we climbed, I spent a lot of time with Gary Jarnigan and it's still a very memorable moment as we ascended Quandary Peak just outside of Dillon, Colorado. With it, as we got closer and closer to the summit, that is essentially what we're after. We're after making the summit, having that mountaintop experience. And I had been told that the uh, mountain had a false summit, and one of those uh, sayings is essentially this, don't get too excited when you think you've reached the top because you have a little bit more ways to go. Gary and I were making our way up to the top and we're sitting there and we take a break and I'm wondering if we're actually going to get up there. He was coaching me along and encouraging me. We sit down and Gary is this kind of MacGyver type person and he has this altimeter with him which gives us sort of where we are in altitude. And we sit and Gary looks at me and he says, well, how much more do you think we have to go? Where do you think we're at? And I said, I don't know, you know, maybe 13.5, knowing that we had to get to 14.2 in a little bit to make the summit. And Gary turns and he says, well, we're actually at about 14 right here. So I knew I had about 200 more feet to go. We get essentially to the false summit and it's really just a little ridge line that we have to go to to get to the top of Quandary Peak. And that is where we had, I had, a mountaintop experience. Just looking out over the mountains of Colorado, the natural beauty that's there, you feel very close to God. It was a wonderful time. It was a time to get away. It was a time to essentially sort of uh, purge things, remove things from thinking. But what I want to tell you is this. You have to descend the mountain. We had to get back down. 
And as much as the mountaintop experience was wonderful reaching this summit, we recognize that indeed you still have to go back down into the valley. Now, as we climbed, it was a spiritual experience in time of just spending with Gary and praying to God and recognizing all the blessings that were there. But on the descent, what was interesting is, is I recognized that I was descending back into the valley. Now, why is this significant? That year was a good year, but there were a lot of things that were in front of me that were unknown. I was descending back into the valley, first and foremost, wondering whether or not things were going to transpire in our desire to have a child, and praise God, we did. We had our son Noah in May of 2018, but at that time, I didn't know. At that time, I recognized the challenges that both Kelly and I faced in order to have that occur, wondering if that was going to be a reality, wondering if God was going to bless, but I still had to descend into the valley. That was also the summer that I recognized that my life was going to become extremely busy because that was where I was beginning to finalize my dissertation for my doctoral program. That was also the summer that I recognized things were going to become busy because we were moving forward in a desire to bring an associate pastor to the church. Why am I bringing these things up? I'm not telling them to you to talk about the accomplishment. What I'm doing is I'm talking to you about the fact that as much as I wanted to stay on top of the mountain with God, enjoying that moment, I recognized indeed that I had to descend into the valley. Let me ask us a question this morning, and that is simply this. Why can't we just stay on the mountaintop with God? How many of you have been so fortunate to have what we would say is a mountaintop experience? Perhaps you've climbed a mountain. Perhaps maybe it's not climbing a mountain, but it was a moment where you felt directly close to God. How many of you would like just to stay there? We all search for that mountaintop experience, don't we? We all want to have that. This morning, what I want to talk to us about is this, is that we must descend into the valley, and in a moment, that's going to become clear in what that means for us in moving and engaging our neighborhood. Some of you might be familiar with Oswald Chambers, a wonderful individual, the writer of My Utmost for His Highest. I know a lot of you utilize that as a devotional. And this is what he says in particular to mountaintop experiences. He says, we have all experienced times of exaltation on the mountain when we have seen things from God's perspective and have wanted to stay there. But God will never allow us to stay there. The true test of our spiritual life is in exhibiting the power to descend from the mountain. If we only have the power to go up, something is wrong. It's a wonderful thing to be on the mountain with God, but a person only gets there so that he or she may later go down and lift up the demon-possessed people in the valley. I don't know about you, but I love being on top of mountains. That's where I feel at home. I love going to ski and being able to look out over the vast expanse. But the reality is that we must descend into the valley. And I think it's going to become important in a moment as we look to a passage in Scripture where individuals had the ultimate mountaintop experience with God. But one of the things that I would encourage us in is, is to recognize that while we all crave that mountaintop experience, while we all crave essentially being close to God and having us be with God and God alone, we must remember and recognize that the purpose that Christ has for our lives, yes, is to draw us closer to him, but it's not just to leave us on the mountain. It's actually to call us, to draw us, to equip us, to descend into the valley. It's in the valley that Christ does his work. It's in the valley of which we draw closer to one another. It's in the hard times of ministry, in the uncomfortable pieces, that ministry actually happens. Where I'm going with this this morning is this. 
friends, it's very easy, and I applaud you for coming to worship. That's wonderful. I'm not belittling it. But this is a mountaintop. Out there is your valley. Out there in the community are the individuals who need to know about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If we just crave the mountaintop, but we don't recognize that we're called for the valley, then indeed we're actually doing a disservice to God. Friends, it's comfortable to come here, and I applaud you for doing so. But the true call, the true test, the true aspect is this, is afterwards we're called to descend the valley and go out into the world and be salt and light for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And this morning I want to show this to us in the ultimate mountaintop experience that three apostles or disciples of Jesus were able to have. But yet what we recognize is, is while that experience was wonderful, that was not the culmination of what needed to transpire. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn with me. We're going to be looking at the passage in Matthew 17, particularly the first eight verses. Now, this passage is seen in all of the Gospels. I just chose it out of Matthew. It's so important that all four of the Gospel writers sought to discuss it. And it is the Transfiguration. If you follow along with me, we start off in 17.1. It says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. Just then he appeared, uh, appeared before them, Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up these shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but climbing a mountain was pretty exciting. And essentially getting to the top of Quantity Peak, or uh, the other time that I was able to make it to the top of uh, Mount Missouri was wonderful. And P.S., this is a plug, guys, for Peak Challenge this uh, late summer, if you want to come and join. I'm sure that that would be an exciting time. But what a mountaintop experience to actually walk with Jesus, to get to the top of this mountain, and then all of a sudden to see Jesus transfigured before them, which we'll speak about in a moment, and standing with Moses and Elijah. What an amazing thing. What an amazing opportunity. And I don't know about you, but if that were to occur, my natural inclination is, I've arrived. Let's just stay here. But first and foremost, we're going to discover that what's going on here is something that we need to recognize. That is, as close to God as these individuals were, this wasn't what they were called to do. This was just a moment in which Jesus was demonstrating indeed who he truly is and also discussing his true mission. In the first couple of verses, what I want to show us is simply this, that um, we see that Jesus' transfiguration is a preview of his future exaltation. We need to remember and recognize that Jesus, being fully God and fully man, came to earth, was born of the Virgin, and began his earthly ministry, yet he has eternally existed. And so Jesus walking with his disciples chooses to take these three individuals up and is transfigured before them. And this is a demonstration of his past as well as his future. 
what do we mean by transfiguration? I want to take a moment and encourage you with this. Uh, it's very well stated by John MacArthur in a sermon called The Unveiled Son. And he's speaking particularly on the passage in Mark 9, 2 through 8, which is essentially the transfiguration in that gospel. And this is what he says. He, Jesus, was transfigured before them. The word is metamorpho, from which we get metamorphosis. Two Greek words, morphe, mean body or form, and meta, meaning change. His form was changed. This word literally means to transform the morphe, the form, the body, the exterior. So we are talking about a radical kind of transformation. His nature couldn't change, only his appearance. Please recognize that when Jesus exists on earth, he is fully God and fully man. Yet at this moment, Jesus demonstrates who he is in his future glory. He becomes essentially the culmination of all that he is before Peter, James, and John. What an amazing event. How awesome would that be? How many of us would want to stay on that mountain? But the plan, the purpose, is far greater. I want to take a moment, and I want to show you really what is going on in here. This passage demonstrates that Jesus is before Moses and Elijah. They appear. And really what's going on there is it's a demonstration of Christ's coming fulfillment of both the Old Testament law as well as the conversation or the signs of the prophets. That's why Moses and Elijah are there. And it says, essentially, that they had a conversation. Now, right here, we don't know what the conversation is about, but we come to discover that what they were conversing is actually found in Luke chapter 9, verses 30 through 31. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want to take a moment, and I'd like to just read to you, what were they talking about? I mean, were they talking about the football scores or maybe what they had done or maybe they were just getting caught up on things and, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. Tell me what's happening. What was the purpose of this conversation? Well, we come to find out this. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. They were talking about his impending death. They were talking about Christ going to the cross to die upon it so that we might have eternal life. That's what they were talking about. As great as the mountaintop experience was for all of them, the purpose and the nature of this was to discuss the impending crucifixion. And interestingly enough, we see in a moment Peter, good old Peter, constantly putting his foot in his mouth. Peter kind of comes up and to be honest with you, we laugh at Peter. We kind of think, oh, poor Peter. But I think I would be Peter. I think that if I was fortunate enough to actually walk with Jesus up to the top of Quandary Peak or whatever mountain he would lead me to, and the next thing you know, I'm standing with Moses and Elijah, I would sit there and I would say, I've arrived. And so what he does is he says, well, Let's settle in. Let's settle down. It's comfortable here. And he turns and essentially says, well, let's make a tent. One for you and one for you and one for you, and we can just spend time together. How many of us are comfortable in our walk with God right now? 
How many of us think that we've arrived? We come to church, we do our thing, we go home, and that's all that we've got to do. Now Peter is thinking right here, actually logically, because both Peter, James, and John were Jewish individuals of the day, and they would recognize indeed that if they were standing before Moses and Elijah, if they had recalled anything of the Old Testament, they would recognize indeed that this is the culmination. This is it. Jesus has come. He has taught some about what he is going to do. They are standing on the mountain, and there is Moses and Elijah with Jesus. Jesus has essentially filled the earthly needs of what are there. We're going to hang out on this mountain for a while. All is well. You don't need to do anything more. Peter's thinking on a worldly level. He's thinking that essentially this is what we're meant to do. This is where we're meant to be. And yet when you discover in the purpose of the nature of what's going on, the conversation between Jesus and Moses and Elijah is actually talking about Jesus' impending death. And so we see, like Peter, we all wish that we could stay in the presence of God. Now please hear me. We're always in the presence of God. God is always with us. He doesn't leave us or forsake us. But how often in our Christian lives do we seek these mountaintop experiences? We look for these mountaintop experiences. We either come to church or we go to an event or we go to a Christian rock concert or we go to this, that, or the other thing. All of which are good. Please hear me. I'm not saying that they're not. But we think that's the culmination or that's the aspirational aspect of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And yet in reality the true nature of following Jesus is descending into the valley. It's descending into the mundane part of life. It's descending into, essentially, the Monday through Saturday before Sunday when we come to worship. That is where Christ is shown. That is where Christ is demonstrated. It's demonstrated through the sacrifice that we make, the love that we show to other people, going out and being Jesus to others. Friends, lovingly, I'm going to tell you that it's very easy to come to church to worship, and that's not a bad thing. It's much harder to take the church out into the valley and bring worship to it. And yet, what we discover is that the purpose of the transfiguration is to demonstrate the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ, but also to demonstrate his mission, which is to go to the cross on our behalf. We look at this passage, and interestingly enough, we see essentially uh, what's going on, and we look and recognize the experience that Peter, James, and John have. Peter just kind of turns and he says, hey, I'll make some tents for you. But notice this. Peter doesn't even get finished. And God interrupts him. Now remember Peter? Peter's the one who obviously goes and says, well, that's not going to happen, Lord. They're talking about what's going on. And Jesus says, well, I'm going to have to go and I'm going to need to depart from you. And Peter says, well, no, there's no way it's going to occur. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. That's not my mission. You'd think Peter would know, and you'd think he would have figured it out. And here, Jesus doesn't interrupt him, but the Father does. And what does he interrupt him with? Well, he says this. This is my son, whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Don't listen to Peter. Don't listen to what Peter wants to do. Listen to Jesus. Peter wants to stay and be comfortable. Peter wants to stay and hang out. Peter wants to spend time. He thinks that he's arrived. He thinks that this is the culmination of all that needs to be done. And the Heavenly Father says, No, 
Listen to Jesus. He affirms Christ. He affirms indeed who he is. The fact that he is God in the flesh, son of the Father, the king of all kings. But he also identifies and recognizes that the true purpose of what is about to transpire is that Jesus is to descend into the valley and go to his ultimate sacrifice. And so interestingly enough, we begin to see who Jesus truly is. Friends, one of the things that I think is important that we see, particularly with Peter, James, and John, is that when we encounter Jesus, and we recognize his mission, something should drastically change in our lives, which I'll bring up in just a moment. Interestingly enough, Peter, James, and John go up to the mountaintop with Jesus. They see Moses and Elijah, which is quite an event. But then all of a sudden, God speaks. And when God speaks, they are terrified. Now, I don't know about you, but that's probably a full word. They're probably terrified with fear, meaning reverence and awe, but they're also probably terrified indeed at this loud voice of God speaking to them. And we see the right reaction that they have. They fall face down to the ground, terrified. Who is that? What was that? And what is he saying? But then watch this. Jesus comes over and he touches them. He says, get up. Don't be afraid. Jesus is the one who interacts with them. He tells them to get up and not to be afraid. And then he turns. And when they look up, everybody's gone except for Jesus. It's the culmination, it's the fulfillment that all is coming to fruition through Jesus Christ. And that's who they focus their eyes on. They focus on who Jesus is. And they focus on beginning to understand Jesus' mission. Why are we talking about this? Why are we parked here on the transfiguration? And why are we parked on the mountaintop? We all want to have that close proximity with God. And that is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with it. But friends, what I'm here to tell you is, is that we're not meant to stay on the mountain. We're not meant to stay comfortable. We're not meant to stay there. We're actually meant to descend into the valley. And lovingly, what I want to tell you is this. Praise God that Jesus descended into the valley on our behalf. But also praise God that the disciples went with him. That they followed him and they began to understand truly what Jesus' mission was. We look at this, and we see God. We see God in his fullness. We see God in his glory. We see God being who he is. But we also see God's purpose. And that is where we go this morning. When they looked up, they saw no one except for Jesus. And you'll notice that we've talked and I've said that we're going to be looking particularly at verses 1 through 8. But I want to take a moment and say that we can't just leave that there in its context. Let's travel on and we see this. That when we encounter Jesus and we recognize his mission, we should be willing to descend the mountain, pick up our cross, and follow him. And you say, where do we get that from? Where is that here in this story? Friends, what I'm going to tell you is this. Let's travel to verse 9. Let's look at verse 9, and it's simply this. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them. We know they descended. We know they didn't just stay on the mountain, even though Peter said, let's just make some tents. Let's spend time here. We've arrived. We don't need to do anymore. But also you say, pick up your cross. What does that mean? 
Interestingly enough, if we just go a few passages before this, we discover the context in which the transfiguration is laid. If you would be kind enough, let's go back to chapter 16. And we're going to look essentially at verse 24 and read forward. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of the Most High is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus says, essentially, if you want to follow me, you're going to need to pick up your cross. You're going to need to deny yourself. You're going to need to move away from the comforts of the world. And then interestingly enough, he says, I tell you, what's going to happen here is some of you are going to see me and the Son of Man coming before his kingdom before you die. Interestingly enough, we look and we flow into chapter 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up the high mountain by themselves. Jesus, in these verses, verse 28 of 16, is speaking to what's about to transpire in chapter 17. That they're going to see him glorified, who he is and what he will be in the establishment of his kingdom. It's a foreshadowing of what's to come. And six days later, these individuals have this experience. But the context in which this experience is laid is the aspect of the disciples picking up their cross and following him and remembering and recognizing that they're not meant to stay on the mountain, but they're meant to descend that mountain and follow Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Well, as we continue in the story, we recognize that Jesus descends the mountain and he heads toward Jerusalem. He goes to the cross on our behalf and dies upon it sacrificing himself essentially as the payment for our sins. And he does so because he loves us so that we might have eternal life. Three days later, Jesus rises from the grave as we all celebrated Easter, rejoicing in the fact that indeed we have been saved from our sins. But we also then must recognize that the story doesn't stop there. The disciples recognize who Jesus is. And while they've descended the mountain, this is truly where they begin to descend into the valley. Anybody want to be a disciple or an apostle of Jesus? Be careful if you raise your hand. Count the cost. Because he asks us to pick up our cross and follow him. We all wonder and we all wish and we say, man, it would be wonderful to be a disciple or an apostle of Jesus. And these are wonderful men, but let's talk about what happens as they descend into the valley and they go out and be salt and light to the world. They don't just go off in a glorious sunset retirement. Let's talk about what occurs to them. What happens to Peter, what happened to James, and what happened to John. You see, they didn't just stay on the mountain, but they descended into the valley. Peter, in John 21, verses 18 and 19, we come to discover, essentially, Jesus talking about the nature of Peter's death. And he says, you're going to die, and it's essentially not going to be pretty. According to church tradition, Peter was killed by Emperor Nero around A.D. 64. 
manner of death was that he was crucified upside down. Stay on the mountain. Stay where it's comfortable. Stay in the presence of God because you have arrived. And yet Jesus knows that his mission is not to stay on the mountain, but it's to descend into the valley to bring salt and light to the world. Peter descends into the valley to the point that this is what occurs to him. This is the cost of following Christ for Peter. But he does so because he knows who Christ is. Let's talk about James. Maybe it was a little bit better for James. Interestingly enough, James was the first of Jesus' apostles to die for following him. He was the first to go. In Acts 12, 2, we discover this. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. James descended into the valley. In the fourth century, uh, Eusebius or Eusebius of Caesarea quoted Clement of Alexandria about James's death. This is interesting. It appears that the guard who brought him into court was so moved when he saw him testify that he confessed he too was a Christian. So they were both taken away together. And on the way, he asked James to forgive him. James thought for a moment and he said, if I wish you peace, and kissed him. So both were beheaded at the same time. James descended into the valley. John, John probably got the best of all, as far as we know. According to Tertullian, a Christian writer, from the late second century and the early third century, writes this, that before the Romans banished John, they brought him into a Colosseum and dunked him in a vat of boiling oil. Miraculously, as we discover, he was unscathed. But with that, he was then exiled to Patmos, where he would write the book of Revelation. Some church scholars believe that that's where he passed. Others believe that he was able to make it back to Ephesus, where he finally passed away. But I don't know about you, but if I knew this was my future in following Jesus, I think I would have stayed on the mountain regardless. Come follow me. Pick up your cross. No thanks. I'm going to just stay on the mountain here where the view is nice and things are comfortable and things are easy. But Jesus' mission was to descend into the valley to die upon a cross so that we might have life. Peter, James, and John, the other apostles, followed Jesus. We'd have come to discover, if you ever want to do, essentially a study on what transpires with them and their lives and how they died, according either to scripture or church tradition, I welcome you to do so. The simplest way to put it is, is it's not pretty. But they followed Jesus. They followed him because of who he is. And so we talk about this and we say, well, what does this have to do with us? Why is this important? Friends, what I'm wanting to encourage us in this morning is to look at the cost, to count the cost of following Jesus and say, are we willing to follow Christ no matter what the cost might be? Now, I'm not saying that we all must be martyred for our faith in order to, quote-unquote, make ourselves approvable to God. But are we willing to count the cost? Are we willing to pick up our cross? Are we willing to descend into the valley and go out to our neighborhood? Are we willing to go out to the world that is dark right now and to be salt and light for them? Or do we just want to come to church to the mountaintop and be comfortable 
are we willing to descend into the valley? Why can't we just stay on the mountaintop with God? We recognize that Jesus' transfiguration is a preview to his future exaltation. And that's wonderful, and that's great. And we see, essentially, the preview to his future exaltation through the scripture. But we also recognize that Jesus didn't just stay on that mountain. He descended down into that valley so that we might have eternal life. We also know, essentially, the content of that conversation when Jesus is with Moses and Elijah is talking about Jesus' upcoming death on the cross. Now, I don't know about you, and I'll be 100% honest. I'm a lot like Peter. I probably, most likely, would have said, yeah, let's just stay here. But yet, when we encounter Jesus and we truly recognize his mission... That should cause us to be willing to descend the mountain, pick up our cross, and follow him. What's the truth behind this? What am I driving at for all of us? It's simply this. While we wish we could stay atop the mountain with Jesus, we're called to descend into the valley. What does that mean? What does that look like? Friends, what I'm going to tell you is this. Church is good. Worship is good. I encourage you to come. That's important. That's a wonderful part of our lives with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But friends, Christianity is not just on top of the mountain. The true call of the Christian faith is to descend into the valley, to go out into the world, and to be salt and light for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I hope and I pray that your futures aren't those of Peter, James, and John. But lovingly, what I want to encourage you in is, what if it is? What if is, that is our call. And what we see here is we see an individual to the point who is willing to go to death on the, uh, by being beheaded. And that because of that individual's faith for Jesus Christ, someone else comes to faith through him. That's counting the cost. So what does that mean for us and our neighbors? Well, let's think about this for a minute. Last week we talked essentially about recognizing those individuals who are around us. Gave a little bit of a homework assignment, for lack of a better word, and I said start recognizing who's around you. Where has God placed you and why? To look at individuals who come in contact with you on a regular basis. We discovered essentially that we all are placed strategically for a plan and purpose of God. You live where you live, not by accident. You live where you live as a follower of Jesus Christ through the sovereignty of God, and he places you where you are at so that you can be salt and life for him. <laughs> Friends, I don't have access to some of the people that you do. Yes, I love what I do, and yes, I love preaching and teaching the message of the gospel, but you have deeper connections and greater opportunities with people in your sphere and circle of influence to be salt and life for them. And I get it. I, I get it. It's easy to want just to stay on the mountain. I just want to have my mountaintop experience with God. I want to do my quiet times. I want to read the Bible. I want to hear from God. I want to pray. I want to be comfortable. I want to come to church. I want to sing songs. I want to hear a sermon. I want to have donuts afterwards. And then I want to go home. And I just want to stay there. But that's not what we're called to do. The reason that many of us are here is because people are willing to descend into the valley. They're willing to go to those who need to hear the message of the gospel. The reason I'm here is because people were willing to descend into the valley. encourage you for a moment. First and foremost, who's around you? We talked last week about thinking and praying about who is around us and how we might be an influence to them. And I promise you, and I'm going to say this lovingly, someone is around you. 
someone is around all of us. And I'm going to tell you, if you're like, well, I've thought and I've prayed and I just haven't come up with anyone, I'm going to say, think and pray a little harder. Because there is somebody. And the next thing that I want you to do is just to say, am I willing to descend, quote-unquote, into the valley? Whatever that might look like. Because ministry is hard. Ministry is messy. Ministry is real when we get together with people who we are messy because of our sins. Myself included. But yet when we're willing to go to them, when we're willing to talk to them about what we have in Jesus Christ, when we're willing to share with them, okay, we're all sitting here and we're like, well, man, you know, Sure, Peter, James, and John were all excited. They got to see Jesus transfigured on the mountain. Guess what? We get to know that Jesus descended into the valley, died on a cross, rose three days later from the grave, triumphing over sin and death, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to establish his kingdom. And anyone who will believe in him and what he has done will have eternal life. That's a mountaintop experience that we need to draw out into the valley with our friends and our neighbors. So let's talk through this. Just a quick, easy little thing. How might you begin to engage your neighbor? Last week we talked about a few things. First and foremost, just get, get their name. Get their name. Who are they? Maybe get to know a little bit about them. Okay, do they have family? Do they have children? Are they from Iowa or are they transplanted? Maybe get to know just a little bit more about them. What do they do? What are their aspirations? What are they like? Do they enjoy golfing? Are they someone who enjoys quilting? Do they enjoy baking? But this week, think through and pray through. Okay? You don't have to do it all in one. But how am I going to engage that neighbor? I'm going to just go to them and we're going to talk about this. Bring a little bit of sunshine to them. What might that look like? You be creative with it. Maybe it's going over and, and giving them just some tulips or uh, you know, a bright yellow sunflowers. Whatever that might be. Just to go over and just to say, hey, how are you? I just want to give this to you. You don't have to engage. You don't have to, to get into a deep spiritual conversation. Although if God moves in that direction, then take the opportunity. Be led by the Spirit. But, but here's where I'm going with this. Lovingly, we're all going to say, I just want to stay comfortable, right? I just want to stay in my seat. I don't want to shake it up. Would you just be willing to be a little uncomfortable? and descend into the valley, whatever that may or may not look like, with those that are around you. And just start with one. Just start with one. One person. Maybe it's a physical neighbor that you live next to, or maybe somebody down the street. Maybe it's a co-worker that has started working with you. Maybe it's someone whom you know. And I'll be honest with you, it doesn't have to be local. I mean, yes, that's great, but it's not about Faith Bible Church. It's about the kingdom of God. But who is that person or persons? Think about it, pray about it, and engage. And lovingly, what I want to tell you is this. True, vibrant Christianity, as great as it is, as much as I love it, as much as I love seeing worship here in this church, as much as I love going to a Christian rock concert, as much as I love Promise Keepers or Peak Challenge or whatever those things might be, that's not what we're made for. We're made for the valley. We're made to go and be salt and light in a lost and hurting world. That's what God calls us to do. And lovingly, when I look around in our world, when I look around and I see what's going on in our societies, I cry out and I say, church, arise. 
stop being comfortable. Stop being individualistic. Start truly being communal and selfless and go out into the world and descend into the valley to bring light to those who are in need. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for this story. We thank you for the joy of the transfiguration. We thank you for the theological significance of it. We thank you for the fact that indeed it is a display of the fullness of Christ. Essentially looking back and looking future, recognizing that Jesus is eternal. It's a glimpse, a moment of the future glory of Christ. But Father, on a practical level, we thank you too that the purpose of the transfiguration is to demonstrate past and future, but also to prepare for what is to come. And Father, that thank you in preparing for what is to come, Christ as well as his disciples were willing not just to stay there. Thank you that they didn't just build tents and stay atop that mountain but rather they descended into the valley for you and I. Father, help us to descend into that valley. As we depart this morning, Lord, I pray that yes, perhaps, we've experienced a wonderful time with you. But Father, may we recognize that we're not just meant to stay here. May we go out this week, may we look around us, may we pray and say, Lord, who is it that you want to draw to me who is it in this world, a friend, a coworker, a neighbor, an individual who I had interaction with, that I might be able to be Christ to them? And then, Lord, lead me by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to do what it is that you would have me to do, to demonstrate your love, your mercy, and grace to them, so that they too, Lord willing, might come to know you, as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the maker of heaven and earth. Father, we thank you for you. We thank you for our neighbors. Father, help us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We pray these things in your name, dear Jesus. We ask it by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say, Amen.